0: This is the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm Jeffrey Grossenbach. Today I speak with Scott Raymond, developer for BlinkSale. First, a shameless plug, I'm teaching a few Ruby on Rails workshops in Los Angeles and one in the Seattle area. If you're interested, go to topfunky.com or dvcreators.net. I also want to thank Samson Audio for donating microphones and other equipment for the show. Today I'm talking with Scott Raymond. Scott runs Red Green Blue, which you can find at redgreenblue.com, no E on the end. Over nine years of experience building powerful user-centric web applications, but you probably know him most from BlinkSale and Icon Buffet. BlinkSale came out Last spring, and got a lot of attention when it was first announced, very clean design, practical functionality, appealed to a lot of people. You can use it as a freelancer or any kind of business to make up beautiful invoices, send those out to your clients, keep track of all that money coming in and out of your company. So welcome to the show, Scott. Thank you. So tell us a little, how did you get the contract to do the project uh, Firewheel Design has done some beautiful work with icons, a variety of other things. seems like kind of a new thing for them to branch into a web service. How did you get that contract?
1: Yeah, it was really, um, well, just sort of fortuitous the way I see it. Josh uh, Williams, who owns Firewheel, had came up with the idea for Blink Sale and had been sort of mulling it over for a couple months and then started working on the templates, and then decided that he really wanted to make a go of it. And so he'd been hearing about Rails, mostly through Basecamp, because he's an uh, admirer of 37Signals work. And so he just got on the Rails wiki, and there was a page there, I suppose there still is, that lists programmers who are available for contract work. And I had just put my name on the list just you know probably a few days before, and he got in touch. Um, I, I suppose, kind of randomly. <laughs> um, maybe he looked at my resume and liked what he saw or something like that, but he emailed me and we started conversing about the project and I submitted a bit and, and off we went.
0: That's amazing. I've gotten a couple project leads just from having my name on the w- wiki too. Probably now that we mentioned it, a, an extra 2 billion people will get on there, but that's crazy. Well, r- tell us about testing and the kind of different tests that you wrote to ensure that being rock solid and just really accurate for tracking financial information.
1: Yeah, honestly, that was one of my fears going into it, is that I knew real businesses like me were going to be relying on this thing for financial records, which you never want to even be a penny off. So I knew going into it that was going to be very important. And this was, well, let's see, this was in the late spring, I guess, of this year. And so rails hadn't even been out for that long at the time um and i had just so I, i'd probably been using rails for 3 or 4 months and before that i came from the php world and in that php world unit testing is certainly done but um the culture emphasizes it far less and so i had never gotten into much practice of writing unit tests and my introduction to rails and i think a lot of developers would probably say this it introduced me to a whole lot of best practices that I had just been you know, sort of too busy or, or whatever to try and pick up before, and one of those was unit testing. So I, I, I say all that to say that I was fairly new <laughs> to even the idea of unit testing, um, but I realized that for this project especially, it was going to be very important. So I, uh, I don't know what to say specifically about the tests I implemented, but I just tried to be as rigorous as I, as I possibly could. And I I missed some things. Uh you know, I suppose that's the process that any developer goes through is that even when you try and think of every possible assumption or, or or type of data that you might get input, it's it's hard to uh to cover every base.
0: Did you find was it helpful to write a lot of custom assertions or were the built in ones sufficient enough to do do what you needed?
1: Uh in that case I did use all the built in assertions. Um, in more recent projects, I have started trying to abstract um, more stuff and write custom assertions. Um, but in the case of Blink sale it's all just using the standard assertions.
0: Well, writing tests very important, and good to hear that it worked well for you. It seemed like an early issue that I read about with BlinkSale was just trying to roll that out worldwide. A lot of different states or even other countries had multiple decimal points of tax that then had to be added and extended onto that. Do you think that taught you anything about rolling out an application worldwide or for a huge amount of people, or would you do more of a limited beta that's so popular now?
1: Um, well, that that's a good example of one of those situations where um, I thought or assumed that we had covered all of the bases test wise. And it turns out um, that my assumptions were wrong. So in that case, what happened was is that um, all through the development phase and in my test fixtures and everything, I sort of blindly assumed that tax rates would always be just a two-decimal precision. And if I had stopped to question that assumption earlier on, I would have realized, while other localities very well could do things differently And I'm not even sure that it has to do with worldwide deployment. I think there may be localities within the U.S. that use... Precision than two decimals okay. um, to calculate tax, and so that came back to bite us. And I realized, you know, that wow, no wonder I didn't catch this because all of my fixtures only used two decimal precision, so it just never came up um, until finally, you know, shortly after launch, uh, one of our users entered in three or four digits of um, decimals in their tax rate and realized that they were getting funny rounding errors. Uh, in their invoice totals. So that turned out to be a very small fix. You know, I, I was able to add a few more unit tests to catch the bug and then uh, modify the method slightly to do rounding more accurately, and then it was fixed. But it definitely taught me the value of questioning every little assumption like that. And like I say, it's hard to do them all, but it's especially when you're dealing with money, it's especially key.
0: And it probably helped with the layout of Rails. That things were more centralized. You could just change some models or whatever, and you didn't have those calculations spread over 50 different places.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it, it did. I, I would count that as a testament to um, both Ruby and Rails um, that I was able to identify the bug and then, within just a matter of hours, um, test for it, fix it, and deploy the change up to the live server. Hopefully, just a handful of users were ever affected.
0: It's a good thing. Well, one thing that many people, including me, really enjoyed about Blink Sales, it just looks great. It's very visually pleasing. Of course, Basecamp has a style of its own, but Blink Sales seems like it took took it up a step, let you choose a few different templates for your invoices and added some color in there. How did that work with working together with Firewheel Design? You said that maybe they did a lot of the design first and then handed you some HTML... HTML templates that you converted or did they do a lot of that work straight up with Rails?
1: Um, they It was very much the, the former case where they um, handed me finished um, and like you say very beautiful templates and then, then I brought them into Rails and sort of animated them and, and made it come alive and uh, it was a little bit iterative in that they didn't do any of the JavaScript animation effects and so there were like ajax type stuff was, usually I started that process and I said, you know, we really don't have to go to a n- new page to display this full form, why don't we display it in line with AJAX? And so there was some sort of design iteration that happened there, but most for the most part, they gave me the finished pages and I was able to make them work, which really worked out great. I, I had thought early on in the process when we first started that that might be a little bit more of a collaborative process and I helped trained some of their designers on how to set up subversion so that they could access the repository locally and, um, and make changes directly to the to the view layer templates. In reality, it, it turned out that it was simpler for me to just handle all of that stuff.
0: I was amazed that you were the only developer on the project, right? Yeah, that's right. I was amazed that you got that done so quickly and so cleanly. What kind of things... Do you think, other than just the nature of Rails, what kind of things helped you to prioritize and put that together at the rate that you did?
1: Well, probably the biggest factor was just the quality of the templates that I got um, from Firewheel. Um, They really get uh, the way that HTML um, and CSS ought to be. I've worked with some other clients where I, I get maybe templates that look nice when they're rendered in the browser, but then when I... Start viewing the source. There's all kinds of hacks, you know, maybe not tables, you know, not a table-based design per se, but very nested divs, you know, and sort of abuse of classes and IPs and markup that isn't very semantic. And that stuff sort of drives me to pull my hair out sometimes. But in the case of Firewheel, they really they know how to write semantically good markup and then CSS that's very clean and, and sensible. So that just made it so that I was able to whip through the pages really fast. And probably the area that I spent the most time on was the JavaScript stuff. Like when you're editing an invoice, there's some magic that goes on there. I had to re-implement, in fact, some of the um, business logic in JavaScript so that we could get really fast response without doing round trips to the server. So I probably spent most of my time on that. But yeah, uh, I I guess it's, again, a testament to Rails that the whole thing was able to go from conception to launch in just a few months' time.
0: Now that leads right in to something I talked a little bit last time to Rick Olson, but on the recent project for Firewheel Design, you really used JavaScript, these new RJS templates to the max. How did you find out about those? And obviously that was a perfect, Uh, perfect place to use those. Tell us a little bit about using that and how that changed the JavaScript that you had to write.
1: Yeah, it did really turn out perfectly. I was actually um, in the middle of developing that site, which is iconbuffet.com, where Firewheel has a set of gorgeous stock icons that they have been selling for a few years, but then with this recent redesign, they expanded their catalog a lot. So part of that project was a shopping cart system. So if you're browsing through these icon sets, you can click a link to add one of them to your cart. And then the way they had given me the the, the templates, several things on the page needed to update. Um, there's a little header at the top that said you've got two items in your cart. And then a little mini version of the cart in the sidebar and a few other things. And so uh, we knew, I mean, and it was in the requirements in fact from the beginning, that we wanted that to be Ajax. We wanted there to be just instant response and um, the, no unnecessary page loads when you know when the the use case didn't call for it. So I had started by writing the JavaScript the traditional way, using the prototype helpers, which is wonderful. But there was still it, it left a bit to be desired because I had to make multiple round trips to the server to fetch these new like three specific partials to update different elements on the page.
0: Okay, so like one, would one Ajax call call up another Ajax call, or how did that work?
1: Exactly, so when you hit add to cart, it would send off an Ajax call that would actually add the product to your carts you know, in your session, um, and then on complete, it had two callbacks that would then fire off new Ajax calls to say, okay, update the header, and then update the little cart summary. Um, and the end result... It worked but it it was clunky because there was a delay and of course it was small but even still when you're talking about a half second that's noticeable and it makes the thing thing feel a bit sluggish. So right then was when RJS templates were first checked into the trunk of Rails and I just keep um, the RSS feed of the change sets subscribed in my um, feed reader and so I, I saw this Thing RJS templates and I, you know, my curiosity was piqued and so I just read the documentation available for it and realized that it was going to be the perfect solution to this problem. So I, I jumped right in and implemented it that way. And the end result is that I was able to eliminate the, that entire JavaScript that I had created, which was not huge, but it was, uh, you know, maybe fifteen or twenty lines long. Replaced it with just a couple lines of RJS, which is essentially generating JavaScript. From Ruby methods, you know, it uses the JavaScript helper class in Rails, and it, it turned out to be beautiful, and it was the perfect solution to the problem. And so, all three elements on the page now update simultaneously, and it's just a lot cleaner.
0: Well, I love the way that works. It, it looks great, and I'm going to have to check out those RJS templates now. Everybody's talking about them,
1: and honestly, the real boon um, to me is your code maintainability it's it's almost like just a nice side effect that the UI stuff is smoother and that there's you know that it works a little bit faster and stuff but yeah the big draw for me is the fact that I've just got a few very clean lines of code now that are very easily readable uh, even a non programmer like the guys at at firewheel if they need to when they're browsing my ruby source i've been intentional about trying to think about them or even just future developers as I write so they should be able to look at that and really um, understand exactly what's going on whereas with the JavaScript code it took some mental gymnastics to <laughs> to parse
0: it sure and maintainability is huge I think I read somewhere that eighty yeah. percent of the work on code ends up being maintenance it's only the we think oh I write it and then I never touched again but more, we're going to spend a lot more time maintaining code than we do actually writing it the very first time. Yeah, absolutely. Other than that, since you uh, seem to be on the edge, what are one of your other favorite features in the new point 1.0? It may be hard to think way back to the 0.13 and all the new things that have been added, but what are the other things are you enjoying now that are, now that the 1.0 is out?
1: Well, this, uh, if you include like the Dot fourteen series, the release candidates as new stuff, one of the things that I've started doing a ton just in the last month or whenever 14.1 first came out, is the rate commands for uh, freezing, like freeze underscore edge and freeze underscore uh, gems. So those, if, if for anyone who's not familiar, they basically just copy the whole Rails source tree into your vendor directory. Um, And in the case of Rails, in Freeze Gems, it uses whatever the most recent gem version is you have installed on your system. Because the Freeze Edge, which I've started using a whole lot, it actually does an export from the official uh, Rails repository. So you're getting the up to the second most latest version of Rails checked right into your application source. So I use that constantly because there are so many great new features in Trunk such as RJS templates. So in the case of ICOMFA, for instance, we can't even use Rails one because it doesn't have RJS templates yet. So I just I just run freeze edge and it unpacks the whole Rails source into my application, then I check that into my application's repository. And that way I'm still working from sort of a known base because I can run all my tests and make sure everything still works. But it just makes it insanely easy to use the trunk version, which is pretty great. So that would be a big one. Um, Maybe the other one that I have started using a ton and really appreciate is the fact that Script Server now uses Lighty as opposed to WebRick for development. That just makes my life way easier.
0: Well, last week I talked to someone and they said, hey, appreciate the podcast, but they were shocked that I had talked to Jameis about religion. So I'm going to... Do that again, because you asked me to, and mention a site you did recently, jacobswellchurch.org, and looks like quite a progressive site for a church. People can have blogs, they can have photos, it even, I believe, hooks into Flickr, you can hear a podcast of the sermons. That was pretty impressive to look through that. Did you come up with a lot of those ideas, or was that initiated by the church itself?
1: Uh, it was collaborative. Um, I met with the pastor um, early on, and he sort of cast a vision for me of what he wanted the church's website to be like. And and he outlined some of those things, that he just wanted it to be a place that was really an extension of the community and where people felt like, you know, if they go to the church, they could come to the site and really feel like they were almost there in some way. And so part of the things, um, some of the things specifically we talked about early on was having people's pictures next to any place that um, post on the site. So there's discussion boards, of course, and there's weblog posts and all those things. And next to everything that we aggregate, um, you see people's faces. And so the particular situation that brought that about in many ways was the fact that the church started growing. It's been around for like five or six years or something like that. And for the first many years, it was a few hundred people And then all of a sudden it started growing a lot and they had to have more than one service on a Sunday. And so then as a result, the community started feeling a little bit disjointed and you could, um, you know, if you always went to one service, you might not ever see 500 people's faces um, who went to the other. So that was very intentional early on is that we want this to be a place where you could sort of get face time with other members of the community that you may not see on a week-to-week basis. Um, And then he also specifically wanted some things that have to do with geography. So we did some Google Maps integration, so you can actually look at a map of Kansas City where the church is, and you'll see little sort of pinpoints all over the city where church members live if they choose to publicize that information, which turns out to be another really great feature because you can look at your block and see, oh, wow, three other church members live right here and we're neighbors. I didn't even realize that. So I've had a lot of people tell me that that's been a particularly meaningful feature because it allows them to just connect with their community in ways that weren't possible.
0: That's a fascinating idea because it really hooks the online world and the offline world and uses them to their best benefit together. Of course, it's not a church, but it's almost like a lot of the people I meet on IRC or other things like that. I have no idea what they look like. If there were almost a similar thing, you would feel much more hooked into the community and the actual people involved.
1: Right. Yeah, and that's such a powerful thing. I mean, just not too long ago, what, uh, I don't know, a few weeks ago, there was that Snakes and Rubies event in Chicago, and I just happened to be in Chicago at the time, and so I went to that event, and it was had the similar kind of feeling of like, these are all, you know, I-, I met many people who I'd only emailed with or only seen an IRC, um, and so it was great fun to be able to connect people's faces with their handles, <laughs> as it were.
0: Well, thanks for taking some time to chat about this. Again, Scott Raymond, available at scottraymond.net with his blog, very useful, redgreenblue.com, no e and Jacobswellchurch.org and of course Blink Sale and IconBuffet.com. So thanks for being here. Thank you, Jeff. So this has been the Ruby on Rails Podcast, we'll see you next time.
1: Chunky bacon! Chunky bacon! Chunky bacon! Chunky bacon!